Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to New York to discuss optimizing mechanical ventilation during ECMO for ARDS. So before we get started, uh, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Daryl Abrams. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University uh, Irving Medical Center and a medical ICU intensivist and ECMO intensivist. Well, welcome to the podcast, uh, Daryl. We're very fortunate to have you today uh, to discuss your article uh, that's published in the Blue Journal entitled uh, Mechanical Ventilation for ARDS During ECMO or Extracorporeal Life Support uh, Research and Practice. So before we get started, maybe you could tell us why you uh, wrote this article and uh, uh, for the benefit of our our listeners, uh, what ventilator-induced lung injury is and why it matters in ARDS. Thank you very much for having me today. Um, the, the origins of this article are actually from a roundtable discussion from an organization called the International ECMO Network that was organized from its beginnings to have an impact on organized research uh, in the realm of extracorporeal life support, uh, offer um, expertise in design of trials, vetting other people's trials, uh, really leading the field in how we can best study extracorporeal life support and do it in an organized fashion so that it's not a bunch of single-center studies, but really something that becomes an international multi-center consortium and an ability to really study things at a very high level and very in-depth with very well-thought-out vetted questions. So this is one area that really remains to be defined in many ways. Um, We recognize that the morbidity and mortality of ARDS remains high despite everything we know about current trials and outcomes and data on how best to manage these patients. And it's believed that ventilator-induced lung injury, or what we'll refer to as VILI, is a major driver for that morbidity and mortality. And so ECMO offers a unique opportunity, and I, I should phrase it as globally extracorporeal life support, um, a couple flavors of which within our extracorporeal membrane oxygenation called ECMO, and a similar technique, although really differing by device and capabilities, of extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal, because ECMO can achieve both oxygenation and carbon dioxide removal very easily, uh, depending on certain parameters that are set, whereas extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal is specifically about carbon dioxide removal from the device, which usually can be accomplished with lower blood flow rates, uh, as opposed to what is needed for ECMO for oxygenation, which typically requires higher blood flow rates. So it's important distinction to draw because as we go through the paper and some of the questions, um, there are distinctions between ECMO and ECOR and what's being done and what's clinically being done, what needs to be researched. Um, So going forward, ECOR in and of itself is actually not clinically being used, whereas ECMO, based on some of the data that we'll discuss, is being used clinically. So um, they both afford different opportunities and may have different applications clinically uh, but globally speaking, what we were discussing was what should we do with the ventilator during ECMO? And so extracorporeal life support globally offers an opportunity perhaps to reduce VILI that is not otherwise available conventionally. Um, the reason this is important, again, is because of the impact of VILI in ARDS and the limitations that are present usually because of gas exchange that don't allow us to go perhaps as low as we would like to go on the ventilator to reduce VILI. 
Um, so in terms of the mechanisms of Vili, so it, I really found it really interesting in your article. Most of us know about barotrauma, trauma, volume trauma, and atelic trauma, but you mentioned a couple of other types of trauma. So maybe you could just go through, uh, I think you mentioned six different types of trauma that can be caused by uh, Vili um, for the benefit of our audience. Sure. So as you mentioned, some of the commonly known mechanisms include uh, trauma because of excess tidal volume applied, so that would be volume trauma excess pressure applied to lungs, barotrauma, the, uh, the opening and closing of the alveoli causing an inflammatory state and uh, trauma to the lungs called atelic trauma. Ergotrauma is kind of a global term that encompasses those and other mechanisms of lung injury applied by the ventilator, kind of the, the physiological forces applied to the ventilator. So respiratory rate and perhaps flow play into the ergotrauma in combination with barotrauma, volutrauma, and atelic trauma. There are a couple other forms of trauma to the organs and not necessarily to the lung tissue specifically that probably play into this end organ damage and, and elevated inflammatory cytokine milieu, such as myotrauma, which is injury to the muscle specifically, and most importantly, probably the diaphragm, um, and that may be caused by the ventilator itself, whether it being that the patient is too passive and not activating their diaphragm or overly activating their diaphragm and exhausting their diaphragmatic muscle because of inadequate support with the ventilator and over-reliance on the patient's own efforts. And that's something that still is being teased out, and we don't have all the information on that that we'd like, but it's under active investigation. And then biotrauma is the idea that all of these mechanisms are increasing the inflammatory uh, milieu in the, in the patient and are having end-organ effects. So those inflammatory cytokines are having downstream and extrapulmonary effects on other organs in the body, perhaps causing renal failure, perhaps neuroinjury, uh, hepatotoxicity, depending on how those inflammatory cytokines re, uh, interact with other organs. So the, the concept that patients with ARDS usually don't die from refractory hypoxemia. They usually die from multisystem organ failure. And we think a lot of that is being driven by Vili having these extrapulmonary effects on other organs. And that's how I would uh, phrase biotrauma. So, I mean, it sounds like mechanical ventilation is supposed to save patients' life, which it does, but it's associated with the significant side effects in the form of villi. So where does ECMO come in? Which patients should we be considering for ECMO, um, and how does it improve uh, villi and gas exchange? So it's interesting in that ECMO, the way it's been studied and the data we have for it, which we'll get to, um, has really been employed in, in situations of refractory gas exchange impairment. So typically refractory hypoxemia, perhaps refractory hypercapnia, or in the setting of the need for applying very high tidal volumes and airway pressures to maintain that adequate gas exchange, or what would, one would consider adequate gas exchange. So ECMO as it stands right now is not per se indicated for, hasn't been studied prospectively in large randomized trials as a way to specifically reduce villi, although that's what we believe the mechanism to be causing the most morbidity and mortality in ARDS. The, the superficial indication, perhaps, is the gas exchange impairment, but underlying which we think the villi is actually the most important target. So there are ongoing studies and investigations specifically using ECMO or, or even more so ECOR in less severe ARDS when oxygenation is not so impaired since, again, ECOR doesn't really support oxygenation. Looking at 
whether e the application of ECOR allows us to specifically reduce parameters that contribute to VILI, such as tidal volumes, driving pressures, respiratory rates. That's, again, an area that's still being defined. Who are the right patients? What are the right parameters? How low should those parameters go? But in the studies that we have of ECMO for patients with severe ARDS, we have that opportunity to look at those patients and see what was done to the ventilator and, and to extrapolate from that, what should we do for patients who have an indication or at least an accepted indication for ECMO at this time to reduce VILI since we already have them on ECMO and we have the opportunity to reduce those parameters. So to, to step back a second, we believe VILI to be a major contributor to the morbidity and mortality of ARDS. The current standard of care dictates low tidal volumes, low airway pressures to minimize VILI to not overdistend the lung, to not apply too much pressure, to minimize VILI as best we can. The, the breadth of data we have suggests that the standard of care is good and is better than what was conventional high tidal volume ventilation. But if we could go lower, that would be better. If our current standard of care is approximately six milliliters per kilogram of predicted weight for our tidal volume and a plateau pressure of 30 centimeters of water or less, there's a lot of data emerging that tidal volumes of four milliliters per kilogram or three milliliters per kilogram, plateau pressures of 25 or 20 would perhaps be better to minimizing VILI since all of the, the mechanisms of VILI would be reduced by and large if we reduce the ventilator parameters we were applying to that patient, the tidal volume, the driving pressure, and so forth. The problem comes in that as you reduce those parameters, for example, the tidal volume you go from six milliliters per kilogram down to three milliliters per kilogram, is that eventually you're gonna face refractory or intolerable hypercapnic respiratory acidosis. You're gonna reduce the minute ventilation such that they're not able to sustain what one would consider adequate pH, pCO2. And depending on the other parameters you change, you may directly affect oxygenation if you're reducing PEEP or if their tidal ventilation is dropped too low and they de-recruit their, their lungs. So that's where ECOR and ECMO come in. You can re if you can reduce those ventilator parameters but not worry about gas exchange because you've got extracorporeal life support in the background managing the CO2 and managing the oxygen, then you perhaps could go as low as you'd like. The question then becomes how low is correct? How low might be too low? Is there a too low? Those answers we don't know. But the problem is conventionally, typically, and not in everyone, but typically you cannot get to much lower than say four milliliters per kilogram, certainly by the protocols that, that are the currently accepted standard of care without running into problems with gas exchange. So that's the opportunity that extracorporeal life support offers for minimizing VILI. Again, it's not yet proven that we should be starting ECMO or ECOR solely to do that. We, we need more data for that. But in the patients that have received it, and we have a, a large prospective randomized trial now out, um, called the EOLIA trial, that shows a difference in outcomes and a large contributor to that, those who uh, believe that that was a positive study, was because of the ventilator settings applied in the ECMO group. Great. So maybe you could go through the current evidence that we have that would support uh, using extracorporeal uh, life support in those patients with severe ARDS, um, and then maybe go through the weaknesses of those studies. The most recent prospective randomized controlled trial is the EOLIA trial, or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in severe ARDS. 
This trial randomized patients with severe refractory ARDS by certain criteria to ongoing conventional management or to ECMO. So most people look at this as an ECMO trial. You take patients with refractory hypoxemia or very high airway pressures or, or correlating with severe respiratory acidosis in an attempt to keep their plateau pressures down, randomized to ECMO or to conventional management. Others may interpret it, and I believe correctly, that it's really a VILI trial in a lot of ways. These patients were either continued on standard mechanical ventilation with prone positioning when available, with neuromuscular blockade, with pulmonary vasodilators as appropriate and indicated and decided upon by the provider, versus ECMO with a reduction in tidal volume, driving pressure, a maintenance of PEEP at a certain level, basically a, what one would consider a more protective ventilator strategy. And this whole idea of lower tidal volumes, lower airway pressures, lower respiratory rates as prescribed by the study may be termed not just lung protective, but ultra lung protective ventilation. And that's the, the terminology we use in our paper to describe not the standard of care, low tidal volume ventilation or lung protective ventilation, but going beyond that. So the outcomes of this trial were negative by frequentist criteria. In other words, the p-value did not meet statistical significance of being less than 0.05. The absolute mortalities between the two groups were substantial. The difference, 46% uh, in the control arm, 35% in the intervention arm. And there have been a lot of subsequent analyses, including a very uh, well-done and sophisticated Bayesian analysis that incorporates people's pre pre-study opinions on whether they think ECMO works. They did other analyses based on the pre-existing data, although that's a little more muddled. And then taking the data from the OLEA and seeing what is the probability that there's actually a benefit here and, and how big a benefit might there be. So while the pre-specified power calculation was to estimate a 20% or to detect a 20% reduction in mortality from control to intervention arm, that was not achieved. There are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the introduction of prone positioning as, as accepted standard of care during the trial, um, reductions in control mortality over the course of the trial. It was not probably an achievable goal. An 11% absolute risk reduction is still substantial, a number needed to treat of nine. And again, it wasn't powered to detect that, and therefore the frequentist interpretation that it was negative, or at least inconclusive. But with all the other data we have and the Bayesian analysis and a meta-analysis that came out afterwards, there really appears to be a very strong signal for a benefit of ECMO in this population. But again, why do we think there was a benefit if you believe that there was a benefit? And I believe it really ties into how the patients were managed on the ventilator. If you just take a patient who is managed with high tidal volumes and high airway pressures, who is refractory hypoxemia and meets an indication for ECMO, and you put them on ECMO and you never touch the ventilator, they will assuredly have poor outcomes or at least worse outcomes than if you took that opportunity and then reduced the ventilator to minimize VILI because you can since you have the gas exchange support of ECMO in the background. So all of these parameters that I'm talking about, the tidal volume, the driving pressure, respiratory rate to a lesser degree based on how it was prescribed in the protocol, all were substantially reduced in the intervention arm compared to control. There was very tight adherence to the protocol. And so that, that appears to be, if there's a benefit, the mechanism of benefit. Aside from the, the general interpretation of the trial, the other big caveat here is that was the one type of protocol for the ventilator on ECMO that was tried. Respiratory rates of 10 to 30, 
plateau pressures no greater than 24, peep uh, of at least 10, and tidal volumes were all correspondingly much lower than in the control arm, much lower than 6 cc's per kilogram predicted body weight. But that's the data we have in a prospective randomized controlled trial in humans showing, again, a uh, likely benefit of ECMO in that patient population. We don't have different ventilator protocols tried. So we don't know how that ventilator protocol in ECMO may compare to one perhaps even more protective or different respiratory rates, different maximal plateau pressure, different PEEP, uh, perhaps different PEEP titrations. And so we're, we're limited in the data that we have, but it's pretty strong data corresponding to better outcomes that, again, goes back to the mechanism that we think by reducing the ventilator when you're on ECMO, you're minimizing that exposure to VILI and improving overall outcomes. Gotcha. And in terms of the weaknesses in these studies, what would you uh, note about them, and how would you improve them in future study designs? I, first off, I don't think there will be another large randomized control trial anytime soon in ECMO for severe ARDS. I think that question has basically been answered as well as it can be. I think going forward, the focus now is what are those optimal ventilator settings for people on ECMO? And if we're going to consider using, for example, extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal, because the major change that occurs, although oxygenation certainly can be affected, the major change that occurs with reductions in tidal volumes, reductions in respiratory rates, driving pressures, with some reasonable maintenance of PEEP is going to be ventilation. So that's where extracorporeal carbon dioxide removal comes in as being able to manage ventilation and not necessarily so much oxygenation. So the question becomes, in whom should we be using as needed extracorporeal life support, such as ECOR, to really minimize VILI as much as possible specifically? Not because they already have refractory hypoxemia and meet an indication for ECMO, but because we think that they're having ongoing exposure to VILI, and by reducing the tidal volumes, respiratory rates, driving pressures below the current standard of care, we'd be saving those people who maybe don't have the, quite the high mortality of severe ARDS, but still substantial mortality and morbidity. But in those patients who, by doing so, have intolerable acidosis, uh, particularly respiratory acidosis, that we need ECOR to support them while we apply those ultra-lung protective ventilatory strategies. So that's where it's twofold. The, the, there's a lot of trials being designed and some ongoing right now, including out of the UK, where they're using ECOR to achieve that ultra-lung protective ventilation, though not necessarily in patients, and certainly by using ECOR, not in patients with refractory hypoxemia. There's going to be other trials coming out uh, to address the same issue uh, in other countries, trying to coordinate those across countries as in international forums. Um, big barriers are what is the right ultra-lung protective ventilation strategy? There's a lot of controversy and a lot of unanswered questions about what the right PEEP is, whether it's low PEEP, high PEEP, or physiologically titrated PEEP on an individual basis. We don't know how low the plateau and driving pressure should go. We don't know to what degree respiratory rate contributes, although it's felt to be it contributes, but to what degree, especially at very low tidal volumes, is there the same risk of higher respiratory rates if it's mostly dead space ventilation? So these are a lot of questions that you want to have a lot of preclinical and preliminary and pilot data before you embark, ideally, on a large randomized controlled trial to know is it the driving pressure that's the biggest parameter and that's the one that we should be minimizing the most? Is it we can't go too low because they're going to develop too much hypoxemia? These are things that are being worked out and, and being thought about as, the, as ongoing trials are being designed. 
The separate question, which has been answered a little bit on pre, with preclinical data and some single center data is, if you already have the patient on ECMO, we know the EOLIA settings, and we do describe in the manuscript what the EOLIA settings basically inform us on what we suggest should be done for patients on ECMO. And with only the EOLIA data available in large, from a large perspective, randomized trial perspective, that's basically what we're recommending, that style at a maximum, and perhaps if you can go lower, go lower. But some preclinical and single center data have looked at uh, inflammatory cytokine patterns uh, and uh, at a histological level, especially in the preclinical data, about different ventilator strategies during ECMO and how that may impact outcomes. So they haven't been done exhaustively. You can imagine there's numerous combinations of plateau pressures, PEEP, therefore driving pressure, uh, respiratory rates. There's a lot of things you can manipulate. And the one single center uh, say that we mentioned in the manuscript did show that from pre-ECMO settings and pre-ECMO cytokine levels, going on ECMO and, and starting with basically EOLIA settings caused a significant decrease in inflammatory cytokines. After that, there was crossover randomization of different strategies used, and there weren't any major significant signals in cytokine changes. So perhaps the biggest change and the most important one is that initial one from excessive volumes and pressures down to more protective volumes and pressures because of the gas exchange support of ECMO. Beyond that, it needs to be worked out. And I think there's other trials that have, some of which have been completed, others that are being designed to try different ventilator strategies while on ECMO to figure out which one's best. Perhaps if any driving pressure, any tidal volume creates stress and strain on the lungs and causes increased inflammation, perhaps no tidal volume is best and a CPAP strategy is preferred during ECMO. We don't have the data to support that, but that's one extreme, that if any stress or strain is bad, then perhaps we apply no stress or strain. Um, or maybe at some lower limit, there's harm if you go too low. We don't know those answers, but we do know at least on the macroscopic level that more, or what I should call ultra-lung protective ventilation strategies such as using the OLEA show a strong signal for benefit over conventional lung protective ventilation strategies in the absence of ECMO. Great. So you've, you've gone into really great detail about um, the intervention arms and what should be investigated. A question that a, a number of clinicians may be asking is, what is going to be our uh, comparison group or else what is going to be our standard of care that should be in both arms so that we patients receive optimal care? And you had mentioned prone positioning and lung protective strategy. Maybe for the benefit of our audience, you can just go through the list of what uh, we would consider standard of care in the management of ARDS in terms of uh, mechanical ventilation and care? Sure. Thank you for asking that. It's a really important question because despite all the knowledge we have on current standard of care, it's unfortunately applied in a very low rate internationally. And this has been shown in some very large prospective, um, basically cross-sectional studies. LungSafe is, is been a comprehensive study looking at what actual practices are by clinicians for patients with ARDS occurring over a four-week period internationally at, at centers all over the world. And the things that you know, what we want to emphasize above all, and this was obviously a, a commentary that we made on what, how the ventilator should be set, what we know and what we don't know so far about ventilator parameters during ECMO for patients with ARDS. 
first and foremost, before we even talk about ECMO, we should definitely make sure that patients are receiving optimal standard of care. So to delineate some of those uh, standards, we've known now for nearly 20 years and with some data even before the, the large trials came out that low tidal volumes and low airway pressures, uh, such as uh, we're studying ARDSnet and others, have a benefit over con previously conventional high tidal volumes and high airway pressures. So as a, at a minimum, patients should be receiving no greater than six milliliters per kilogram predicted body weight and plateau pressures of 30 centimeters of water or less. Unfortunately, that is not well adhered to in the general population. Um, and so just reinforcement of those very simple ventilator adjustments is first and foremost. Since then, other things that have come out with this, really the, the one other major intervention that has shown a, a dramatic and very large statistical benefit is prone positioning. So previous to, to the PROCEVA trial, there were several studies that all suggested a benefit in more severe ARDS patients by doing prone positioning over assumed pipe positioning. And finally, when PROCEVA came out, what they demonstrated in, high, in centers with at least five years experience with prone positioning, that there was approximately a 50% relative risk reduction in mortality from about 32% absolute mortality in the control arm down to about 16% in the intervention arm, which is in patients with P to F ratios less than 150. This is a dramatic reduction. Uh, it speaks to the impact of prone positioning and the potential benefit of something that's not really interventional. It, in these high, uh, or certainly in these centers with, with high experience, there were very low rates of complications. If anything, the complication rates were really higher in the control group. And it's something that does not require cannulation, anticoagulation, the risks that may be involved with ECMO when you can just do something as simple as flipping someone over in a, in a conventional bed, not even using a special bed. So as is the story with low tidal volume ventilation, but even more extreme, prone positioning is not adhered to at anything close to the rates it should be. Um, with such a mortality benefit, yes, you do need the experience. You should be a center that is comfortable doing it, but you have to get there with experience. And we really advocate that before people receive ECMO, unless there's a clear contraindication to prone positioning, patients should undergo prone positioning for an improvement in mortality and ideally to also then avoid the need for ECMO. Um, neuromuscular blockade is a more complicated story uh, because for several years, it appeared that there was a benefit with neuromuscular blockade in a patient's with similar uh, uh, patient population as was studied in prone patients with P to F ratios less than 150, there's a more recent trial called ROSE that makes it a little bit more complicated in terms of how to interpret it uh, or interpret the role of neuromuscular blockade in ARDS because there was not a benefit in that study, although it's by design very, there are some important differences from the original Acuresis trial. So one takeaway may be if paralysis was otherwise being used in some other protocol, then you should continue to use it. And for prone positioning, the vast majority of patients were paralyzed. So it's certainly reasonable to continue to paralyze those patients for the sake of proning them, since that was a kind of a nearly a bundle package that was studied. For ECMO, for Eolia, every patient was paralyzed before getting ECMO. So it's hard to separate those out. And certainly patients that were severe enough ARDS to warrant ECMO, despite paralysis, it would be reasonable to continue to employ paralysis in evaluating a patient with severe enough hypoxemia for ECMO. So it's hard to separate two interventions that were done simultaneously in any trial. 
So rather than make a commentary on what's the role of neuromuscular blockade in ARDS, in the severe ARDS patients that are being considered for ECMO, there still appears to be a reasonable role for paralysis to optimize those patients and decide whether they really need ECMO. And for prone positioning, because it was nearly done in everyone, it's reasonable to uh, continue to paralyze patients who are being uh, uh, prone uh, to see how they, they uh, perform, rather than say pr uh, paralysis doesn't work, so let's only prone without paralysis. You can, and it was done in, in a minority of patients, but the data that we have, the majority of the data we have reflects patients who were prone to under paralysis. And other strategies that have been studied, but without the same robust mortality benefits, are a, um, a more conservative fluid management strategy, which uh, had surrogate outcomes that were better in those that were managed with a uh, more restrictive fluid management than a more liberal fluid management strategy. Um, but the, the, the core tenets of, of the standard of care of managing ARDS patients before ever considering the invasiveness of ECMO at this stage is low tidal volume ventilation, prone positioning for those that don't have contraindications and who meet oxygenation criteria, um, and in combination with that, typically neuromuscular blockade. Perfect. That's a really good overview, and I really appreciate your insights. Um, you mentioned uh, some of the pitfalls or complications of extracorporeal life support. So I was hoping maybe you could go through that for the benefits of our audience. Uh, we as a critical care community tend to get enamored and, and really want to pursue uh, new therapies, and maybe it's useful to just be aware of some of the complications or um, the negative aspects of uh, extracorporeal life support. Sure. And we certainly don't want to give the impression that ECMO is without its risks, and that's why I emphasize some of these much less invasive uh, and arguably safer and, and, and lower risk profile interventions that can and should be done before consideration of ECMO. The general application of ECMO and extracorporeal life support in general typically requires anticoagulation because of incompatibility uh, between the circuitry and the fact that it's in coming in contact with the blood. So barring a contraindication, patients receiving extracorporeal life support are managed with anticoagulation. The goal of which varies from center to center. In general, we believe you can get away with a lower anticoagulation goal, especially with the current circuitry that has, is, has more biocompatibility, and as a consequence, get away with less thrombosis and um, with maintenance of, of circuit integrity and, and less thrombosis formation both in the circuit and, and in the patient. Interestingly, we don't know as much about ECORE since, again, it's not being used clinically and really being used in the research capacity. The whole idea of ECORE, we think, is that it's maybe safer because you can get away with lower blood flow for carbon dioxide removal. And with that, maybe you can get away with smaller cannulas, such as the, on the order of what's used for hemodialysis, as opposed to the larger cannulas traditionally used for ECMO, which rely on higher blood flow rates. But at lower blood flow rates for ECORE, there may be more stasis and perhaps a need for higher levels of anticoagulation. So maybe that risk-benefit improvement because of smaller cannulas is offset by potentially a greater risk of bleeding because of the need for higher levels of anticoagulation. I think the ongoing trials using ECOR with smaller cannulas is going to give us a lot of information about those risks, both of clot formation at lower flows and perhaps bleeding if needing higher levels of anticoagulation. So with anticoagulation come bleeding risks, as you can imagine. Um, the, the risk of HIT formation, although it appears that the, the development of HIT is low in these uh, patients just based on observational data that have been published. 
The other uh, risks you have to consider for cannulation itself, uh, you can cause trauma to the vessels, you can cause perforation of the heart, uh, depending on where the cannulas are placed. Uh, typically, under urgent or emergent circumstances, the easiest way to place ECMO and, and all of the extracorporeal life support strategies I'm talking about for ARDS are venovenous. So with venovenous, that means there's a cannula draining blood from a vein and a cannula putting blood back into a vein that's now oxygenated and has lower carbon dioxide. The quickest way to do that at the bedside is to do it in two sites, to drain from typically the IVC through a cannulation of the femoral vein and reinfusion through the SVC through our cannulations, the internal jugular vein. There are other cannulas available. There are other techniques, including a single cannula that can accomplish both, and is typically put in the internal jugular vein. But the vast majority of patients for ARDS are typically receiving one of these two-site cannulation strategies. So it means you're putting lines in large cannulas. You can have vascular damage. Um, there's infectious risk, potentially. Uh, you know, All of these have to be considered in the patient that perhaps can be managed conventionally or really we think fits the criteria where they would, based on certainly the OLEA data that we have, would benefit from cannulation with ECMO. So it's, it does not replace the standard of care. It's important when people are considering ECMO but haven't done more conventional things that are available to them and can spare them ECMO because we have such robust data on things like prone positioning. Um, those are the, the major immediate risks in terms of ECMO cannulation. Um, there are other potential consequences. We, we don't know what, just like we don't know what too little oxygen necessarily does, and we think that there's a, a tolerable, safe, lower range of oxygenation, both tr traditionally in ARDS management with standard of care, and perhaps even while someone's on ECMO. ECMO affords the opportunity to have typically much higher oxygen levels in the blood. There's potential risk of having too high an oxygen level. That's something that in the critical care community has been investigating more and more. We don't really have a definitive answer there. Um, abrupt changes in carbon dioxide once patients go on ECMO is something that has been, there's been a suggestion of a correlation with neurological events. And so I think that needs to be teased out more, but we do generally recommend that when someone goes on ECMO, especially if they're already quite hypercapnic, that the carbon dioxide not be reduced too rapidly, more over the course of several hours to the first day rather than abruptly when they first go on to try and normalize someone who was starting at a very high CO2. Um, but these are all things that have not been teased out on a very large scale, um, but you know, certain uh, smaller studies have suggested uh, observationally that some of these parameters may have adverse uh, outcomes. Great. I mean, I really appreciate that great overview. So if I... Uh, was a, a physician, a critical care physician, and I'd taken to ECMO. Um, what would I need to set up an ECMO service um, at my hospital? Um, or what, what guidelines would you give to a physician who are thinking of pursuing that uh, therapy? I, I think this question highlights uh, one thing that I want to emphasize with the Yolia trial, which is that while we believe there was a benefit of ECMO in this severe ARDS patients over standard of care uh, ventilation, uh, standard of care ventilatory strategies plus prone positioning in refractory hypoxemia, or the third group really was more of a reflection of low compliance, high dead space, and that there's a, a, a strong signal there that they may be the ones who have benefited the most. But the important 
thing to take away, if you do interpret this as a positive trial and want to start using ECMO for these patients, is that these were all done at expert ECMO centers, centers with a lot of experience, knowing how to manage these patients, knowing how to adjust the ventilator, certainly by the protocol that was applied. And many of these centers already applied this type of ventilatory strategy. These were not such extreme uh, parameters to set because this is typically used. And in fact, a very large prospective observational study called LifeGuards, which was also published not too long ago in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, demonstrated that large or high-volume ECMO centers already basically, even before Eolia came out, practiced this type of ventilatory strategy in ECMO patients. They're already, when patients get cannulated, reducing the driving pressure and reducing the tidal volumes, reducing the respiratory rates, reducing what one might call globally the mechanical power applied by the ventilator, it's already being done at these expert centers. Where we need to make sure it's being done is everywhere in patients who are receiving ECMO. So there's a few aspects to performing ECMO that shouldn't just be done by anybody. You really want to make sure you have the experience, that you have um, the right multidisciplinary team in place, both the surgeons to cannulate, and many, many more centers are using intensivists uh, or cardiologists, perhaps, to cannulate patients on ECMO because of the, the crossover in terms of technique and what's being done percutaneously. Um, <clears throat> but there's a correlation between how much ECMO one center does and outcomes. The, the signal is stronger in cardiac ECMO, venoterial ECMO for cardiac failure, but there still appears to be an overall signal there for high-volume ECMO centers having a better outcomes with their ECMO patients than low-volume ECMO centers. And there's a lot in there, and, and certainly there could be low-volume, very experienced, very high-quality ECMO centers, so it's not all, but there's general trends. It led the same group, actually, a few years ago um, to put out a position paper, our group the, out of the International ECMO Network, a position paper on what should be done to basically do ECMO for respiratory failure. What kind of center should you be? What kind of uh, access to resources should you have? How much volume should you target? And these are a lot of the um, points that were addressed by this position paper, which I'd refer the, the audience to, um, with the lead author, Alain Combs and, and Daniel Brody, because it really highlights all the potential pitfalls of, of where you could go wrong by just trying to do ECMO and not having the resources available. Um, we encounter this clinically where a center in an emergent situation who has access to ECMO for someone with refractory hypoxemia puts someone on but then doesn't know what to do with them afterwards. Certainly doesn't know how to manage the ventilator, but also doesn't have the resources. They don't have the staff to manage these patients long term outside of the operating room, let's say, or are so limited by their ECMO specialists or perfusionists who are really uh, there to manage cases in the operating room that they can't uh, divert those resources towards ECMO patients. So a lot of it is about planning, about the resources, about considering who you need around you, what kind of materials you need around you, what kind of volume you do, and, and what kind of experience you can gain. Um, other resources that people can go to, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, or ELSO, is a leader in um, basically quality measures and a registry in terms of what centers are doing in terms of ECMO volume for all indications, adult, pediatric, neonatal, respiratory, cardiac, extracorporeal, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or eCPR, and have a lot of data on how different centers perform, and, and basically as benchmarks for your own center. But there's also guidelines there on things like how to start an ECMO program or you know, what should be done uh, ahead of time in preparation, because you don't want to 
put someone on and then have nowhere to go. Um, there's different models that can be used, such as Hub and Spoke, where uh, either you know, our center, for example, we get referrals from outside hospitals, and what we've established is an ECMO transport team. So we evaluate a patient based on what the clinician tells us they've done so far and what's available to them. We decide whether they need ECMO, whether they can be optimized and no longer need ECMO, whether they can be optimized and transported to us as a center of acute respiratory failure to manage them conventionally, or if we simply don't have any options, they're stuck at the outside hospital, they don't have any other, perhaps they don't have access to prone positioning, they're not safe enough to transfer in their current state, and we'll dispatch our ECMO transport team to cannulate them at the outside hospital and then bring them back safely on ECMO. Because if we have those ECMO transport capabilities, we feel very confident in our ability to transport someone safely on ECMO. If you look back at the CSER trial back in 2009 in the Lancet, they were randomized to conventional management, which was not always standard of care, or referral to a center capable of ECMO where they would optimize them first and then decide if they still need ECMO. It's telling that in that trial, several, I think it was three patients, um, several pa a couple patients waiting and a couple patients in transport died before ever getting to the expert ECMO center for consideration of ECMO. So transport is not, uh, without ECMO certainly, is not a trivial endeavor and, uh, and can potentially be very high risk. Transport with ECMO can be high risk if not done in the right hands. So I think it's really important that if you're considering transporting patients with ECMO that you have a lot of experience and have done the necessary training and have the right resources to do that safely. But that's kind of what has informed our model that rather than take the risk of transporting a patient too unstable um, to just get them to to our center to try and optimize them, if they need it, if they meet criteria, if they don't have any other options available to them, we can cannulate them at the outside hospital and transport them. And that's a common model in a lot of large volume centers. Um, other possibilities are to cannulate on site by the originating hospital with an arrangement ahead of time with the refer receiving, excuse me, the referral hospital um, with an agreement ahead of time that we're gonna cannulate this patient because they meet the criteria and you can't get to us fast enough and then you'll accept them to, towards your center. Um, there's just basically different models depending on what different hospitals and hospital systems um, are willing to, uh, to do. Great. I mean, I think you've covered uh, the pitfalls and uh, uh, issued a pretty uh, great warning to uh, people who uh, want to start ECMO without the necessary um, support structure. Um, Daryl, as we turn towards the end of this podcast, I just want to see if there's uh, any topics or any um, issues that we haven't covered uh, thus far that you think the, the listeners would benefit from. I think it's um, important to know that while we outline what we consider suggestions based on the data we have as far as how to manage patients uh, with the ventilator while receiving extracorporeal life support during ARDS, there are a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of areas that need further investigation. We don't know the optimal ventilator settings. We have a certain set of ventilator settings that clearly appear to show a benefit over conventional once the patient is on extracorporeal life support based on the Eolia trial. And that's what we have made our suggestions around. But that may not be the best settings. And we may be able to go lower with our ventilator settings and that needs to be teased out. We don't know what the optimal gas exchange targets are. Um, and these are all questions that we highlight in our manuscript um, about where the field should continue to go. What other questions can be answered? What's optimal oxygenation during extracorporeal life support? What's the right carbon dioxide and pH target? Is there a consequence of too high an oxygen tension in the blood? or is there really a consequence of two rapid carbon dioxide changes? 
spontaneous breathing is a whole nother bucket of uh, uh, unanswered questions that are ripe for more investigation. How much is too much spontaneous effort? How much is too little? How much do either of those areas affect myotrauma and diaphragmatic injury and worse outcomes? Should we allow spontaneous breathing during ECLS? Should we not do it early? Should we only do it later? What's the right timing? Can extracorporeal life support obliterate the spontaneous respiratory drive and allow us to completely control it? But is that even the right thing to do, or would that cause myotrauma from uh, being too passive with the diaphragm? Um, should we extubate people during ECLS for ARDS? Might that create a situation where there's too much spontaneous effort and more villi, or are we minimizing ventilator-associated adverse events that it outweighs any uh, potential harm from spontaneous efforts? These are all questions, basically, that ECLS has raised because we have these abilities. Before this, we would never have the opportunity in severe ARDS to get rid of the ventilator, but now we can. Uh, we would not potentially be allowed to or have the opportunity to let someone breathe spontaneously early on with such severe ARDS, but now with gas exchange support, we can. So. I don't have the answers to these. Our group does not. Um, some of these are being investigated, but I think these are a lot of questions that we want to know because we have the technology and we have the ability to minimize a lot of the parameters that we think are causing uh, poor outcomes, but we just don't know where the right mix of all of these uh, parameters are that are going to really optimize outcomes. And maybe it's not in assuredly is not one size fits all, but maybe certain patients will benefit from one strategy and other patients would benefit more from a different strategy. You know, PEEP being a good example that we don't know where to set PEEP. We don't know if it should be set based on transpulmonary pressure. We need esophageal pressure monitoring. We don't know if it should be set based on optimal compliance and driving pressure. Or if any of it matters once you're on ECLS and you can reduce all those parameters. So this is where the field of ECLS research will continue to go. Um, it certainly requires a lot of collaboration. I think the International ECMO Network or ECMOnet uh, provides a nice opportunity and forum for people with ideas to present their research ideas that can get vetted and create a, an opportunity to collaborate across multiple centers rather than multiple people at different centers working on the same question on a small scale, but instead collaborating and doing it on a much larger scale and hopefully getting more definitive answers. Perfect. Well, I think that's a really great way to end the podcast. I want to thank you very much for providing really great insights and a very passionate uh, uh, outline of what the ECLS is. Uh, congratulations to you and your team for a really outstanding publication in the Blue Journal. And I definitely encourage all our listeners to go ahead and read your paper. You take care. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Abrams. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.